Welcome to the Bitcoin Boomer Show. Here's your host, the Bitcoin Boomer himself, Gary Leland. And welcome to the Bitcoin Boomer Show, produced in Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas, of course. And I'm Gary Leland, the Bitcoin Boomer. Today we have a great show for you, but I want to make sure you realize the goal of this show well, it's not to sell you Bitcoin. I don't have Bitcoin for you. We're not going to sell you any Bitcoin. I'm not going to give you any Bitcoin either. No, the goal of this show is to help inform you and educate you about Bitcoin. You see, I believe Bitcoin is growing and is going to continue to grow and may become a dominant currency in the world someday. So to inform you is a good thing to do so you are ready when that happens. Now today we have a great, great guest on our show. We have Lynn Alden from Lynn Alden Strategy. Uh, Lynn is not only a very nice person, but a very smart person. Gives us pretty, will give us pretty thorough answers from what I've seen in the past. But I want to introduce to Stephanie, our producer. And Stephanie, do you have any questions? Stephanie's the one who told me I had only had one female on the show, one lady on the show, one woman on the show up till now. This is our second one, and I didn't realize that. So since this is our second woman and she's been keeping tabs on this, which I will try to change. Stephanie, do you have any questions for Lynn? Well, I was just curious from everything we've discussed. Do you think governments, or at least the U.S. government, would ever make Bitcoin illegal? So, yeah, that question. Okay, well, that's a good question. And to kind of start answering it, governments have made Bitcoin illegal, never in the U.S., but other governments have made Bitcoin illegal, and many of them made it illegal and withdrew that and made it legal again. So that has happened before. But in the U.S., it's never happened, and that is a great question. So we'll be sure and ask Lynn about that. Because that's something also, Stephanie, that a lot of uh, boomers ask me. You know, when I try to tell them about Bitcoin and explain Bitcoin to them, they ask a couple of things. What is it backed by? Some of them think the dollars are backed by gold, so Bitcoin needs to be backed by something, and they're wrong on, on uh, gold-backing dollars. But the other thing they always say is, the U.S. government's not going to let that Bitcoin stay around. They're going to make that illegal. Uh, so that is a great question for us to ask. So we'll have Lynn on the show after the upcoming break, and that will be one of the questions we're going to ask Lynn is, will the U.S. government ever make Bitcoin illegal? Thank you for that question, and I hope you tell your friends about this show before we go to our commercial break, because we want to share this information with people. So please, share this show with your friends. I'll say that several times during the show, because I can't say it enough. Share the show with your friends. Say it one more time. Share the show with your friends. We'll see you right back after this word from our sponsor with Lynn Alden. I love coming to BitBlock Boom because it's like it's like Mecca for Bitcoiners. Like everybody here is like part of the hardcore like inner sanctum. Um, you just have these conversations with everybody where like you can see it in their eyes that they believe the same things that you believe. You come to BitBlock Boom once, you're gonna come every year. And welcome back to the Bitcoin Boomer Show. I'm your host Gary Leland. The Bitcoin Boomer. That's right, the original Bitcoin Boomer. And today we are joined by a special guest. Lynn Alden is uh, on the show today, founder of the Lynn Alden Investment Strategy. Um, Lynn Alden Investment Strategy has a newsletter. Lynn, welcome to the show. You can tell us, <laughs> you can tell us about yourself. Um, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Oh. Good. Could you tell us Thanks all- Thanks for having uh, me. Happy to be here. 
Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, we had a little bit of problems getting everything together this morning, but we seem to be on the same page now. So, so that's good to have that over with. How about give us a little short just bio about yourself? Because I was messing it all up there. I couldn't even get the newsletter right. Uh, sure. So my, my background was originally in engineering, uh, electrical engineering. I worked in the aviation sector uh, and I went into engineering management. And then I started back in 2016. I founded my own research service uh, for investments. Uh, related to macroeconomics, technology trends, uh, uh, energy, uh, all sorts of different areas like that. Uh, and so for the past uh, you know six six plus years, I've been providing public research for people, both uh, you know free open articles as well as a, a research service. And then I'm also I'm on the board of Swan Bitcoin. I'm one of their directors, and I also uh, now do some venture capital work uh, in the Bitcoin only space. Isn't that kind of a a big shift there from engineering to investment, or is it not? Or was one your passion and you were doing the other one because that's what you thought you wanted to do for a living? Or what's, how'd that switch happen? Well, from my perspective, basically, I started investing before I became an engineer. I basically I had a lifelong interest in investing. Uh, but when it, when it came time to go to university, it's that you know, I could have chose. Um, you know, business, I could have chosen um, uh, engineering. I went with the engineering roots, uh, but I never really left behind that investing and business focus uh, that I was always kind of passionate about. And during my engineering career, I increasingly blended the two. I kind of shifted. I got a master's degree in engineering management, focusing on financial modeling, engineering economics. I began running the finances of our engineering facility over time. So shifting from a design engineer to basically um, engineering management and, and all the finances. and you know, a lot of it is just a quantitative background. You'll see actually in a lot of investment banks, for example, a lot of people with engineering backgrounds go into it uh, because you're taking kind of the same sort of quantitative math that you go into uh, in one field and apply it to another field. And kind of the way I approach things is I treat a lot of things like control systems. My, my initial design work, a lot of it was in control systems. So you're basically analyzing or designing a system where you have a ton of inputs, a ton of outputs, and, and logic in the middle for how those inputs trigger those outputs. And when I do, for example, macroeconomic analysis, I'm often uh, applying control theory to it. I'm understanding what are what are the inputs, what are the outputs, um, breaking it down into the same type of uh, methods that I would do if I was analyzing an engineering system. So there's actually a lot of similarities, especially because the global financial system as we know it is essentially an engineered system. It's just instead of bolts and wires, it's you know, banks, it's it's regulations, there's there's specific design framework for how this all fits together. And it's essentially a, a financial engineering uh, system to analyze. That makes sense. So, so, so basically, in the short of it, math is math. I mean, you can do math for one, I guess you could, if you're good at it, you can do it anything with math. And that was your, your peak interest there. You know, I... On the sub, I want to say something before I forget it real quick. I'm going to get this out there. Uh, you have your newsletter, your investment uh, strategy newsletter, I guess. And I saw uh, the other day on Twitter a conversation between you and Peter McCormick. And he was telling you, you need to go up on your newsletter. And you were saying, I don't want to go up. I want to make it affordable for people. And I thought that was really uh, a kind way of thinking is that you wanted to, you'd rather have more people have access to your information rather than uh, going the easier route and say, okay, let's just keep it a small amount, but I can make more off these people. I, I just wanted to tell you, I really thought that was a, uh, a good way of thinking. And I wanted to compliment you on that. Not that that has anything to do with your, the show here, but that's a personal uh, compliment there. I appreciate that. 
what I try to do is I try to make a lot of the research free. And then for the, for the, you know, the, the low cost research portion, ever since I launched that, uh, you know, three and a half years ago, I've not raised the price. Um, and so it's one of those things where I want to keep it accessible to people. So I, you know, a lot of people that have a lot of money, they can hire a financial advisor, they can, you know, get all this individualized, uh, you know, work done for them. Whereas if people are just trying to, you know, they have less money, they, they're trying to navigate, and understand some of what's happening. Um, I, I try to basically make information as accessible as possible. And the, you know, the advantage of either software or of, of written, you know, and content in general is that the marginal cost of adding new readers or new consumers of that information is not significant. And so it, it you're basically able to, you know, if you want to, like the way I approach is I don't want to maximize revenue. I want to just, I want to maximize kind of impact. I want to, I want to reach people. I want to, you know, do what I can to, to, you know, uh, demystify some of the complexities out there as in the world of finance. Well, I thought that was a very good way of thinking about it, though. That's for sure. And I, I appreciate that personally. Hey, um, what was your orange pill moment? How did you find out about Bitcoin? I mean, um, was it like soon, soon as you saw it, did you understand the math part of it and that was uh, enticed you or was it something else? Um, what was your orange pill moment, basically? So I got the math. Yeah, so I got the math part pretty quickly. Uh, for me, the problem was I was concerned about the idea of it being copied. I was like, basically, if you, you know, you have Bitcoin, it works, it's scarce. Why can't anyone just come along and copy it and make, you know, why, why does the market just diffuse into a bunch of these different coins? And so I, I initially counted it back in 2010 or so, uh, maybe 2011, somewhere around there. Uh, and, you know, every time I, I would kind of like look into it, I would find it neat. Um, I would explore it, understand the basics. And then not really move forward. I would run into some sort of friction when when looking into how I buy it, you know, kind of sketchy websites back then. Or uh, I would, you know, I was I was working full time. I, I, you know, I was dealing with some healthcare issues. I basically, you know, had a, had a pretty full life. So I'd always kind of make a mental note that I want to like dive in a little deeper and then just time would go by. And I would find out like two years later when there's another big price pump. Oh, yeah, this Bitcoin thing's still around. Let's see how that's going. And I kept going through that cycle where I would like, you know, almost get more into it and decide that it's, you know, I was like, you know, why, why can't it be copied? What if it's, you know, what if it has a bug? What if, you know, it's, it's kind of like I, my, my precipit, uh, 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 assumption was that it was interesting, but ultimately probably not going to work. That's kind of like a interested skeptic, you could say. And for me, it was really the resolution of a block size war. So, you know, throughout 2015 to 2017, there were a number of, of, uh, proposals for changing the way Bitcoin works with the hard fork, which is essentially increasing the block space so that you can get more transaction throughput. But that would come at the cost of making it harder to run a full node and therefore would threaten the decentralization and the immutability of the network. And so I kind of watched that play out. And when I saw how hard it was to change Bitcoin, right, because in, in the block size war, a lot of the exchanges were in favor of increasing the block size. Uh, a lot of the big, you know, corporate players in the space by that point, they were they were kind of a, a strong agreement to do that because it does benefit those bigger companies to have more throughput because they, you know, they're not trying to optimize for decentralization; they're trying to optimize for revenue. Uh, and then also, you had something like you know, over eighty percent of miners signaled that they were interested in that change, uh, but it was the individual users, the people running nodes, that that heavily pushed back uh, and basically said, "We're not going to update." Uh, and then there was, you know, the whole, the whole uh, idea of a, a user-activated soft fork. Uh, and it was interesting to see that that basically 
you could collect such a massive amount of major stakeholders and they were unable to change the network. Uh, and so that's really, that was like my, my kind of final orange pilling moment. It was like that combined with the fact that I, I fully grasped the network effects associated with Bitcoin. And an analogy that I use is that Wikipedia, you know, we all know Wikipedia and you can copy Wikipedia pretty easily. You can download all the information on Wikipedia. You can put it in a thumb drive. It's really not that much information. And you could, you could technically post that on your website. But the question is, would you get any traffic? Right. Would you get the, you know, the hundreds of millions of readers that Wikipedia gets? And the answer, of course, is no. So you can technically copy it. You can't really copy. It. And that's because you can't copy the network effects that Wikipedia has. You can't copy all the millions of links around the website pointing to the real Wikipedia. You can't copy the, the army of volunteer editors that are that are constantly refreshing the real Wikipedia. It's very, very hard to ever transfer that network effect onto something else. Same thing would be if you if you made like a clone of Twitter or Facebook. You can't you could you could technically kind of copy parts of it, but you can't replicate the whole thing. And so with Bitcoin, I kind of realized the combination of how immutable it was and that its network effects were pretty serious. And I, I became quite interested in the protocol. Well, and then we also during that block wars had Bitcoin Cash come out and uh, to give us an example of whether it, what you're saying whether it could be copied and work, and it didn't. So we'll be right back after this word from our sponsor with Lynn Alden. And welcome back to the Bitcoin Boomer Show. I'm your host, Gary Leland, as always. And today we're talking to Lynn Alden uh, with Lynn Alden Investment. Uh, Lynn. I have to say, you are the first person I've asked that question to maybe 70 people now over the last couple of years in the show, and you're the first person who's brought up at all the block size wars in their uh, orange pilling moment, which actually makes a lot of sense as uh, something that could convince you uh, to go with that. Um, one question, though, I do ask everybody who comes on the show is I want to know, in your opinion, in Lynn Alden's statements, what is Bitcoin? What is it? So Bitcoin is a decentralized ledger, uh, and I would describe it as basically the first decentralized ledger, the first and best one we have, which is, you know, prior to the notion of Bitcoin, you know, all ledgers were controlled by somebody, right? So a bank controls the ledger, the central bank controls the ledger that all banks use in that in that jurisdiction, uh, you know, and what Bitcoin was, was essentially a, a, a it came along and it introduced a decentralized ledger. Another way of thinking of it is that if you own shares of stock, Right, that that corporation uses a another company called a transfer agent and registrar to keep track of of who owns the shares, and it, it you know it helps with the you know facilitates the transfer of shares to other people, and of course that's a that's a centralized entity. And what Bitcoin essentially is is a decentralized uh, uh, transfer agent and registrar, or it's a decentralized settlement network, a decentralized ledger. And instead of being backed up by governance, instead of a, a, a central entity administering it. Uh, or some sort of quorum or federation administrating it. Instead, it uses energy uh, to run. And the way that works essentially is that mining uh, allows, you know, it basically uh, helps uh, a bunch of different entities that don't know each other coordinate and order themselves and order the transactions on the blockchain and basically uh, impose this rule set that is is very, very costly to attack or try to mess with. And then in addition, you you know, basically every individual can run a node. As long as they have basic technology, like a, a, a you know a basic laptop, you know some sort of like um, 
you know, it's something that's pretty common in the developed world, a little bit more challenging in the developing world, but essentially with pretty low hardware and um, internet needs, you can run your own node and therefore you can initiate uh, transactions without going through a centralized third party. Uh, you can receive uh, transactions without going through a centralized third party. You can audit the state of the network. Uh, you help you help determine what is Bitcoin, right? You, your node recognizes whether something uh, uh, is following the rules of the network or not. And that's why, for example, if there's a hard fork, a change in the rules, uh, it doesn't get, uh, uh, you know, your node does not propagate that transaction. It's just used as, as something that whatever it is, it's not Bitcoin. Um, and so essentially it's, it's, it uses energy to coordinate the, the transfer of value. And what's, what's neat about that is it means there's no nation state that controls it. There's no organization that controls it. It's not a security. That's why, for example, Gary Gensler, the SEC chairman, describes it as a commodity. That, that's a pretty uh, consensus view, uh, that it's essentially a, a commodity for you know tax and regulatory purposes. And essentially, there's this ledger with scarce units attached. And you know, another way of putting it is that you know, in the United States, for example, a lot of us think of Visa. We pay with Visa. It's a it's a quick transaction type. It's low cost. We can do little transactions. It's super fast. And Bitcoin is often compared to that. That's actually not what the right way of thinking about it because all the Visa does, or Mastercard, or PayPal, all these all these payment layers, they're sitting on top of a, of a stack of of you know different financial systems. And towards the bottom of that stack, for example, is Fedwire. Right, that's a settlement system that the Federal Reserve runs between banks, and that settles trillions and trillions of dollars. And it settles, you know, relatively few transactions, but they're very large, uh, millions of dollars each on average. And so, when banks are communicating value with each other through things like Visa or Mastercard or PayPal, all they're basically doing is updating their internal ledgers, and then they later settle on these one of these bigger transactions. They batch a lot of these small transactions together and then settle it. And what Bitcoin essentially is, is a decentralized Fedwire. It's a decentralized settlement network that also has its own units attached. So even Fedwire is running on top of what is essentially a fiat system, or it's, it's you know it's it's near the foundation of this fiat system. Whereas Bitcoin is both like a digital gold, but that also has its own settlement rails. So it's a, it's a decentralized Fedwire. It's a digital gold combined. And then on top of that, you can build all sorts of other layers. You can build you know, federated side chains that that move tokens around quickly and more anonymously. You can build the Lightning Network, which is basically a channel-based system of uh, you know uh, more quick payment methods. Uh, and so you can build this whole stack that basically replicates what we have in the financial system, but in a decentralized and sound money way. So, um, is Bitcoin money? I would describe it as money. Yeah, it, it basically. It meets a lot of the characteristics that we look for in a good money. It's it's scarce, uh, it's fungible, it's liquid, and you can compare it to other monies. I mean, basically, one way I would describe its use case. So that was kind of the more technical description. I, I think a, a fundamental way to look at it is it's, it's decentralized money in a decentralized cloud. And so, for example, if you were determining, I want to bring money with me globally. I want to bring all my money with me globally. You can think of how how would you do it, right? If you try to bring gold through an airport. In any sort of sizable amount, you're probably going to get stopped. If you try to bring, you know, a suitcase full of cash, you're going to get stopped. But with Bitcoin, you can memorize 12 words in your head, or write them down on a piece of paper, or store them in a thumb drive, whatever you know, di different types of ways to do it. But literally, the, the the most extreme ways, you can just memorize 12 words. You can go to another country, and then you can reconstruct your ability to access your funds. 
uh, basically, it's all on this decentralized cloud, this decentralized ledger of nodes. And what's neat about that is, you know, from a so American perspective, that might not seem valuable to us. But in the world full of refugees, uh, in a world where something like 50 percent of, of people live under what is classified as an authoritarian regime, that mobility of funds is actually a really powerful, uh, you know, type of money. And so it, it, I would say it absolutely does meet the characteristics of money. You can picture some things like, say, a Picasso painting. Those are stores of value. Those are bare assets. But they're not good money, of course, because they're not fungible. They're not liquid. Um, it, it's hard to audit and, and determine that it's real. It's, it's a more costly type of, of kind of store of value uh, or luxury good, whereas something like Bitcoin, something like gold, something like silver, these are these, these scarce, liquid, fungible units. And the, 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 the you know, kind of the, the powerful part of it is that there's a cost to produce them, right? Nobody can come along and just print more Bitcoins. There's no CEO of Bitcoin that can that can cheat in a way that the other users can't. Everybody's interacting with the network in roughly the same way. And the only advantage you can get, you know, if you're a miner, you know, maybe you have cheaper electricity uh, or you have better hardware, you can get these temporary advantages over other people, but everyone's playing by the same rule set. Uh, and same thing if you're a user. I mean, you can you can buy Bitcoin or you can mine it. And there's there's really nobody that can cheat the system. And so I think in many ways it is like a, a digital gold, um, but you know, with its own pros and cons. Well, I think uh wouldn't a good example of that uh the the twelve words we were talking we were talking about be in the case of Hong Kong, um, when China took back over Hong Kong, if people were fleeing the country and they had uh, $150,000, $500,000 worth of gold, they sure, certainly were not getting that out of Hong Kong. But if they had it in Bitcoin, they could have taken it with them when they fled. Absolutely. And I think an even more powerful example, Alex Gladstein talked about this, uh, that, you know, uh, Roy Maboub back in 2013 was paying Afghani girls with Bitcoin. Uh, and th the reason for that was because uh, basically, she was, you know, teaching them to code and then helping them earn money. And if they took back physical money to their families, often their male relatives would just take it. Um, and there's basically no way to, to store it. Often they they couldn't get a bank account. And so, you know, Bitcoin is kind of their self-sovereign bank account. And, you know, obviously that country has all sorts of run into trouble since then. And a number of them wanted to flee. They wanted to flee Afghanistan. And you know, many people obviously couldn't take their funds with them uh, if they even had funds left from from inflation and all sorts of problems there. But some of those uh, girls and women that had Bitcoin were able to to flee with their money with them. And they've even described how in that, you know, some of them went through rather difficult processes of leaving the country. They went over land borders to other countries. They went over perilous boat rides. They would, you know, they would get, um, you know, basically like... Uh, you know, threatened to give over valuables that are on their person. They people would get conned. People, you know, sometimes you're on a boat and the boat, you know, sinks. And what's amazing is it's really hard to to you know do that journey with gold or cash or things like that. But if you have 12 words written down or you have 12 words memorized in your head, uh, that's actually a, a powerful way. And there were specific examples of people that were able to get money out. I know people same thing with Venezuela, with all sorts of different areas where they want to transfer value. Well. That certainly would have come handy for, that would come handy for so many people, especially refugees, for sure. Um, we'll be back after this word from our sponsors with Lynn Alden.
Welcome back to the Bitcoin Boomer Show with Lynn Alden as our guest today. Lynn, let's get back in. Before we get back into the conversation about Bitcoin, I want to tell you something I meant to tell you earlier. When I told Stephanie, our producer, we were having you on the show, she informed me that you were only going to be the second uh, female that had ever been on the show. And she was very excited. And I didn't even realize that. I mean, I, I just had tunnel vision and didn't realize it was a man show. Um, so uh, thanks for coming on the show and helping us double the amount of women we've had on the show. We're going to work on that. Uh, so I just thought that was a funny, uh, funny comment. Um, you know, when we met out. I appreciate and, that. Yeah, it's, 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 it's. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say it is a very male dominated space, but it's interesting because when you look around, you know, there actually are, you know, there are female uh, venture capitalists in the Bitcoin space. There are a lot of female developers. Uh, it, I've actually noticed that a lot of the content creation is, is, is uh, you know, a lot of those creators are male. But when you go to other parts of the network, it's actually there, there are a lot of women involved. And, and so, you know, like a lot of anything that's kind of software focused uh, is, is on average going to be more male dominated. But it actually is amazing to see how diverse Bitcoin is in, in both a global sense, geography, and in terms of, of, of genders and other things when you look around the whole world. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Hey, when we were when we met out at we didn't meet, but when we were talking out at Pacific Bitcoin one evening, we were in an event. We were talking. We started talking about boomers uh, and Bitcoin. And I guess because that's a subject that I talk about a lot. Um, why do you think? Um, what do you think boomers really need to know about Bitcoin? Uh, are, and what is their holdup uh, that more boomers are not moving into Bitcoin, in your in your opinion? Well, I think I mean anything that's new is going to require you know work. There's there's a friction there. The default is always to stick with what is. Um, and obviously, on average, younger people have less of a history of what is, and so you know they're more inclined towards what is becoming or what it, you know where things are going. Whereas if you have a longer history of things, you're more entrenched on average. Obviously, everybody's unique. Everybody's an individual. And so if you're very used to the way things are, it could be it could be challenging to learn um, kind of a new, uh, a totally different way of doing something. Right. So we this, this financial system, as we know it, uh, you know, stretches back many decades prior to that. There's other systems, but it's all kind of this continuous thing uh, stretching back really to like the 1800s. Uh, and so Bitcoin comes along and, and basically says, OK. Money can flow over pure software. It's not inside the banking rails. It's a totally parallel, separate system, uh, and so that's that's naturally going to be challenging. It's also, I mean, you know, it's it's not. It's, it, I wouldn't describe boomers as having unique problem. Obviously, when you look at, um, you know, when you look at studies, uh, generally the younger you skew, the more interest there is in Bitcoin. But even among younger demographics, there are a lot of people who don't understand it, and that's because it's kind of this combination of software, economics, uh, incentives. Uh, in some ways, politics. There's this, there's this very kind of um, broad set of things you'd have to understand to at least a moderate degree in order to maybe start understanding why Bitcoin's valuable. A lot of times, also, I see that that people in developed developed countries have a tougher time understanding Bitcoin than people that are in developing countries, and that's because our you know as as problematic as some of our money uh, uh, and payment systems are, they're still among the best ones in the world. Uh, whereas a lot of other people, their currency devalues way more rapidly. They have way less banking average, way more, you know, arbitrary bank freezes or authoritarian actions. Uh, basically, all sorts of, of of currency or or human rights issues that are that are more prominent in a lot of those countries. And so, when you look at, for example, 
chain analysis does the crypto adoption index, uh, which basically ranks countries by different metrics for how interested their populations are, you know, how much they're using. Uh, you know, they don't they don't separate Bitcoin specifically. It's, it, they they kind of group all these cryptos together. A lot of it though is Bitcoin and stable coins. Uh, and you know, they kind of rank, okay, how much is this being used? And you'll see that, you know, 18 out of their 20 top countries are developing countries. And the other two, the developing ones are the US and the UK. Um, and you don't really have to explain to an Argentinian, young or old, why uh, Bitcoin or stable coins are valuable. Basically that they're, you know, if you're in that country, you're dealing with rampant inflation. Um, there's a history where if you, if you try to store dollars in the local banking system, they're, they're liable to be confiscated from you because, you know, the country often has like a dollar shortage. And so the question becomes, how do you store value? Uh, and so things like Bitcoin and stable coins basically allow people to access a decentralized money, Bitcoin, or access dollars in another form in stable coins. And it you know, basically is a stronger incentive to learn how it works and an easier path to see why it's important. Um, and whereas in, in you know developed countries, young people might gravitate towards it. But if if you're if you're used to the existing system, you're like, well, why do I need this? What what problem is it solving? And so I you know I think that. I would just tell uh, you know people of all generations that it's it's basically just it's it's a digital gold it's a decentralized settlement network uh, that's a pretty new innovation I mean, that's a, that's a powerful thing we think about on a global scale and so from there you know whether you are you know depending on how technically interested you are in it you can dive into it and you should be skeptical I mean I was skeptical everyone you know when you're when you're encountering something new you should be open-minded, but also skeptical. You should say, okay, well, what's the catch? Or, or or what are ways that this could fail? Or what are the shortcomings? So what what trade-offs are you making in order to achieve the, the features that you have, right? And so there there are good questions to ask about, about how to be skeptical with it. But I would say that it's, it's a powerful new technology and it is worth taking the time to understand, uh, at least to a reasonable degree, how it works and, and what problems it's solving. Um, and, and I think the last thing I would point out is that you know, before they mentioned a Bitcoin, if I wanted to send money to a friend in Japan or even just a friend in, in across the country, I'm on the East Coast. If I want to send money to a friend on the West Coast, how do I do it? I have to go through the banking system, right? Unless I want to stuff a couple dollar bills into an envelope and try to mail that, you know, small amounts, things like that. If I want to send a meaningful amount to someone at a long distance, I have to go through these centralized banking system. And with the invention of Bitcoin, it's peer to peer money. The only thing I'm going through is is my my node to their node, and then in the middle there is a network, but it's a decentralized network. There's no centralized authority that determines whether or not my transaction goes through. Uh, and so the ability to send money peer to peer uh, globally to anybody with an internet connection, anyone with a smartphone, is really powerful. And you know, banking was invented centuries ago. Depending on where you want to, how far back you want to go, and, and where you want to define that point from, but in literally the past, you know, 20 years, more, you know, we've gotten to the point where more people in the world have a smartphone than have a bank account. We, you know, just in the past few years, that that eclipsed it, and it's it's increasing at a fast rate. Uh, and so, basically, that you know, smartphones have been able to do something that that banks have not been able to do for centuries uh, with a better trajectory. And you know, Bitcoin is is accessible to to almost anyone in the world who has a smartphone. And there's even some technologies to put it on on feature phones, right? There, there are developers in Africa that are finding ways to even get Bitcoin uh, in limited ways on even cheaper hardware than basic smartphones. But the point is that you know technology has an exponential curve to it, and that allows for 
more excess of, of good money and, and, and kind of basic financial services. You're saying that smartphones have really opened that up. That's really moving at, at a faster pace than anything else has ever happened. Exactly. Basically, it, it, you can ask, like, you know, anyone with a smartphone should have basic financial services, including good money, no matter where you are in the world. And so if you want to set up a bank account, you know, if, if you have if you're in a developing country and you have two dollars and you want to open a bank account, the bank just really doesn't have an incentive to work with you. Uh, they're just like, oh, we don't really want to bank you. You only have two hundred dollars. Uh, take, that takes all sorts of administrative work on our end. Uh, and then even if you do get a bank account, I mean, that's subject to all sorts of regulations. It's, it's easy to enforce. A government can easily tell a bank what to do. Uh, in a lot of countries, they restrict access to dollars. Uh, they're often having dollar shortages. And so, you know, if you try to save a uh, foreign currency, if you're in a jurisdiction with a weak currency, you're trying to save a foreign currency in your bank account, it'll often either be very high fees or they'll just say no, or they'll say yes, but then when there's a crisis, they'll take it away. Um, if you open a foreign bank account, that's obviously only accessible to, to wealthier individuals. It's often very high fees. Uh, and so this basically lowers the threshold for who can access the money that they want, whether it's dollars, whether it's Bitcoin. You can even get like gold backed stable coins if you want. Basically, with a smartphone, you can access the money that you want. Uh, and you can also you can send money to others. You can basically do things that, that, that these banks have in, in some ways been unable to do especially in a lot of these other jurisdictions. It kind of it kind of democratizes and globalizes the idea of good money and allows a, a more global marketplace so that the best assets like Bitcoin are accessible to everyone. Well, that, um, I had not thought about how smartphones had helped so much. So I appreciate that thought. And we'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. And welcome back to the show, joined by Lynn Alden of the Alden Investment Group, our strategy, rather. Lynn, I had not realized, I realized, I guess, in the back of my mind how much the smartphone had made a difference in growth, but I didn't realize, really, that that's been one of the things that have really been the big drivers on Bitcoin is the accessibility to the phone or to your bank account with you at all times, where, as you said, many people... Uh, cannot open bank accounts. And if you go to many parts of the world, while we're used to a bank being on every corner, I mean, typically maybe even two or three on a corner, that's not the way the rest of the world is. Many places you have to travel 100 miles to get to a bank. So that makes a big difference. But I do want to ask you a question a boomer always asks me. This, I'm just trying to feed up my information here for answering boomer questions. One of the top questions I get is there's two of them. But the first one is, the government's going to make that illegal. They're not going to let Bitcoin exist and compete with them. What do you say? Well, I think the first thing I would say is that there are, you know, nearly 200 different jurisdictions in the world, right? So, so quote, the government is, is really 200 different governments. Uh, and some of them have, have tried to, to make Bitcoin illegal or have added frictions. So, one way to think about it is that if, if a government wants to impose restrictions on banks, right? So, for example, in 1970, they did the Bank Secrecy Act, uh, which basically made it so that banks have to report your transactions to the, the, the government uh, over a certain threshold of money. And, of course, they never inflation adjusted that that money. It used to be it's $10,000. That used to be more than a person makes in a year. Uh, but, you know, money's lost about, uh, you know, it, it's it's inflated by a total of about 8x. So that, that was like the equivalent of 80000 back then. 
Yeah, even though it was, it was ten thousand, and so now it's it's the amount of that you know a person might make in in you know a couple months, uh, and so uh, you know they can just impose that on all banks, and of course all banks have to comply. And it's very low cost for ensuring that that it's enforced. Whereas if you're trying to impose something on individual level, that's actually a lot more costly to enforce, right? So anyone can participate in Bitcoin by using open source software on your laptop. Uh, and it's very challenging for government to tell you that you can't do that. Um, and, you know, they can say it, but then the question is, how do they enforce it? And in countries with rule of law, there's additional protections and based on the First Amendment. There's legal precedent about how, how code is a form of speech, right? So, for example, they try to make it so that people who develop encryption techniques could not share them. Uh, and they, they kind of tried to classify those as exporting, like, you know, weapons. And so the people that did them just wrote them in books. They said, okay, here's the code is in books is protected by the first amendment now speech. And that, that passed through, uh, you know, pretty, pretty rigorous challenges. Basically the government tried to block things and it, it, it mostly failed to do so. And so the way I would describe it is that Bitcoin is this thing. It, it exists globally. It's existed for 14 years. Now governments have been grappling with it. Some, some of them tried to ban it and then they moved back from it because they realized that they're not actually banning it. They're just banning themselves from it. Right. So India, for example, flip flopped around how they're going to treat Bitcoin, whether or not they're going to try to ban it or not. Uh, an easier thing that governments can do is that they can cut their banking system off from. it. So it's much harder to tell individual people that they can't, for example, you know, you can generate a private key. If you flip a coin 256 times, you can generate a private key uh, and then you can, of course, from there, generate a public key and an address. People can send you Bitcoin, even if you're not using the software. Right. And how, how do you stop that from happening? Um, and so it's very hard to force there. But what governments can do is they can cut off Bitcoin from the banking system. They can say that banks are not allowed to send money to crypto exchanges, Bitcoin brokers. Uh, they can try to stem the, the outflows from their financial system into that. And you'll see that often in, in countries with weaker currencies that are facing more currency crises. For example, Nigeria, they don't ban Bitcoin ownership and they, they really couldn't do so if they tried. But they have stopped banks from being able to send uh, money to crypto exchanges. And yet, despite that fact, they still have very, very high adoption of Bitcoin and stable coins and things like that, because there's a very strong need for those things in Nigeria. And Nigeria also introduced their e-Naira, their central bank digital currency, and it has terrible adoption. I mean, last I checked, it was, you know, it was introduced back in uh, 2021, and it still has less than 1% adoption. Uh, meanwhile, you know, Bitcoin and stablecoins is proliferating there, even though they've been cut off from the banking system because where there's, you know, life finds a way. And so it's designed in such a way that it's very hard to be shut down. When Satoshi talked about it back in 2008, 2009, when he was kind of describing his design uh, choices, he, he compared, you know, you know, back in the in the music file sharing days. Right. So when you had Napster, that was a centralized service that helped people share files. And so the government could just go to Napster and say, shut down, we're suing you, we're arresting you, whatever you want to do, you're going to shut down. Uh, whereas if you instead develop a peer-to-peer -peer way to share files, it, it's just like a virus it's out there. You know, you can, you might not want the flu to, to you know, to come every season, but it does. And there's really no, nothing that anyone can do about it. And some of these things are kind of the software equivalent. They're out there, they're decentralized, nobody controls them, nobody owns them. There's no central entity you can go to to stop them. And so Bitcoin is, is very much in that group. It's designed in that way. 
so that it's it's very hard to stamp out. You can you can push it into the black market if you're rather authoritarian, but then it still exists there. Even China, as it, it's kind of known for its authoritarianism, and they banned Bitcoin mining back in 2021. And you know they were you know when they banned Google, when they banned Twitter, these are very effective. They only have to ban them once, and they're and they're you know for the most part banned. Whereas you know a lot of people in China use Bitcoin. There's developers in Bitcoin uh, in, in China. Uh, and even mining, even when they banned it, uh, you know, estimates today from University of Cambridge and others still show 10, 15, 20, 25 percent of mining happening in China, depending on what estimate you're looking at, because there's still it's just very hard to, to, to fully push it out. It's a very decentralized bottom up technology with a pretty low barrier of entry. Uh, and so, you know, uh, you're both protected in some jurisdictions by rule of law, right, that it's it, it's essentially a type of speech. But then, too, even in places where it is outlawed or all sorts of frictions are added, it's just very hard to enforce on the on the individual level. And that's why I would think globally with 200 different jurisdictions and the idea of mobile money, it's it's a very hard idea to stop. Wow, that was a really great answer to a better answer than I've ever given. So you really helped me out. Um, yeah, I've always thought that'd be hard to shut down worldwide. It could affect the pricing, but eventually I think Bitcoin would win. Um, Lynn, tell people where they can find out more about you, find your your newsletter, follow you, whatever, before we wrap this up. Sure. Uh, I appreciate you having me on the show. I'm at, I'm at lynnalden.com. That's, that's where they can find most of my work. And I'm also active on Twitter at lynnaldencontact if, if you want to find me there. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, um, you know, I want to talk to you sometime in the future because I like the point you were make. I saw on your uh Twitter page that we didn't have time to get to is that if you uh, are confused, if you think Bitcoins and cryptocurrency are the same things, you really don't understand either. And I thought that, well, I wish we had time to discuss that because I thought that was such a great point because, you know, Bitcoiners have been making a big point lately to try to separate themselves because there's a big separation between Bitcoin and the other 20,000 cryptocurrencies. And I, I don't think, um, I think that separation needs to be made. And I, I really do wish we had time to discuss that. But thanks for coming on the show. And again, I apologize for us being a little late. You were a great guest. And I look forward to seeing you somewhere out in the real world life somewhere. Will you be in Miami? I plan on it, yes. Okay, so hopefully, hopefully, I'll see you there. hopefully I'll run into you there. I think that's what we were met. Thanks again, Lynn. And for everybody out there, we're getting ready to take a break, but I hope you enjoyed this show. I highly recommend you go to lynnalden.com and subscribe to her newsletter. It's free. Even her paid version is affordable. Or follow her on Twitter. This is, uh, uh, she is a valuable resource full of information. And as you could tell from this show, she definitely is thorough and knows her information and knows what she's talking about. She's just not someone... Uh, living in their grandma's basement, just watching Twitter and, and repeating what other people are saying. She is actually doing the work. And I have found over and over again, if people do the work, uh, most, of, most people won't be able to do the work as well as she does. But if you do the work, you will understand Bitcoin. Most people who tell me how bad Bitcoin is or what's going to happen have never bothered to do any work. So they're not really aware of it. But we're getting ready to take a break. Word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back after that break to wrap up this show. So stay tuned for that. And please, before I go, I want to make sure you know, share this show with your friends. If you have a friend that wants to know about Bitcoin or you feel should know about Bitcoin, tell them to start watching this show or listening to this show. 
Our job is just to educate you, not to sell you Bitcoin. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. And welcome back to the show for our wrap up. I hope you enjoyed our guest today, Len Alden. She is, like I said, full of knowledge. Great person to follow. Check her out at lynnalden.com or follow her on Twitter. Um, but uh, you can't go wrong there. And it looks like we might be coming out with a newsletter soon, the Bitcoin Boomer newsletter. We're working with a, a producer on that, a publisher, so I'll let you know more about that. But in the meantime, be sure to check out our um, convention, our conference in Austin, Texas, bitblockboom.com. This will be our sixth year for our Bitcoin conference. It's at the end of August. It's always at the end of August, last weekend in August, so make sure you check that out. And if you're in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, Come to our meetups. We have a Bitbot barbecue. We have several meetups, one in Dallas, one in Fort Worth, one in Arlington. So just go to bitblockboom, uh, or excuse me, go to meetup.com slash bitblockboom for all of our meetups. And you can find all of them there because bitbotbarbecue.com is one of them for sure. And also I want you to check out our book. I wrote the, I say our book because I wrote this book with seven other people. Seven of us, or eight of us, me and seven others, got together and wrote this book in a week. We all went to Austin, lived in the same house for a week, and wrote a book, uh, Bitcoin and the American Dream. Now, this is a great book as an introductory book if you're trying to learn about Bitcoin or if you want to uh, help someone, someone else learn about Bitcoin. You could buy this book for them. But go to BitcoinandTheAmericanDream.com, and you can buy paperback or hardback copies of the book. A great place, a great book uh, to get to start people with. And I also want to tell you about something else. Uh, we have a new site called the SatsCardShop.com. SatsCardShop.com. It's a place to buy SAT cards. What are SAT cards? They're great. If you wanted to gift someone, give someone uh, for Christmas or a birthday, $50, $100, $25 worth of Bitcoin, you can actually put it on a SAT card and give them the card, it's like a credit card, and they actually have Bitcoin on there. So it's kind of like a debit card, but loaded with Bitcoin. So it's kind of cool, and you can load it and unload it 10 times. So uh, if you're not familiar with those, you need to go to satcardshop.com and check it out anyway, just to see what sat cards are. But it's a great, great tool for sure. Uh, make sure and follow me on Twitter, I'm Gary Leland on Twitter, but I think I'm Gary Leland everywhere. So check us out on Twitter, Facebook, wherever you follow, and follow my show, show YouTube, wherever. I want to thank you for coming and watching us today and sharing your day with you. I know you're busy and you have a lot of things going on, but thank you for sharing your time with us. And make sure and tell anyone you know about the Bitcoin Boomer Show. Have a good day and see you next week.